there are moments where I've experienced something for the first time. I wish I could have those moments back. Because I experienced something that was so surprising or so cool or so awesome um, that to, to, to have the surprise of it combined with the quality of it is something that can never be attained. Even if you go back to the well and you get to experience the awesomeness, the quality of it, you never get to be surprised by that thing again. So like last spring, Chance the Rapper has this mixtape come out and, and there's this song on it, like you get two thirds of the way through it. And he takes a Chris Tomlin song, How Great Is Our God, right? Which is like the, one of the whitest white bread worship songs that we got. And he like puts it, so it's like funky hip hop with a little like electronic beat to it and puts that as like the first half of the song. And then he comes in and he does his verse. And then the second verse is done by this rapper, Jay Electronica, which none of y'all probably know about. You're just too young. You don't have these years yet. But Jay Electronica, a lot of people view him as like one of the, the, the greatest lyricists of of all time, and he's been underground. Like people just thought he had retired or disappeared or was hanging on the, the, the island with Tupac and Biggie or whatever. And all of a sudden, Jay Electronica just like comes on with this this verse out of nowhere. And I remember I was listening to it, I was like, man, we got Chris Tomlin and like Jay Electronica on the same track. And while I still love the song, I can never get that moment back where like Jay just, you know, kicks in the door and like walks through and starts spitting. It's kind of the same when you get to the end of some movies, like, you know, uh, The Usual Suspects or Fight Club. And you're like, wow, that was awesome. And I never get to watch these movies through the same lens again, because now I know how they end. There's one moment I never get back, and, and the thing that stinks about it is um, not only can I never get this moment back, but I never could remember. It happened so long ago, I can't remember what it even felt like to have that moment in the first place. And I don't think, you know, even if none of us have, have seen this film, none of us can have that moment back. The film is The Empire Strikes Back, one of the greatest films of all time. Seriously, you're laughing. I, I will sit down and have a three-hour-long discussion with you about why it's some of the greatest storytelling of all time. There's this scene in the movie where a character is introduced on screen. And that character is Yoda. And even if you've never seen a Star Wars movie, like when Yoda comes on, you just saw his picture, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's Yoda. Because, you know, you look through my kid's closet, he's got five t-shirts with Yoda on it. He's got a thermos with Yoda on it. Every like Lego store has giant and, and, and little Yodas. Like he's ubiquitous right now to American culture. But the crazy thing is in 1977, when Yoda's name was, was, was first mentioned, nobody really knew who he was. And so then when 1980 comes and he's about to appear in this movie, he is, he is built up to be this great, strong Jedi master warrior. And when the Yoda that we know, who's like this little shriveled green, some people say he's a puppet. I think Yoda's a real person or whatever he is. This, this little shriveled green being, when he comes on, 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 on the scene, there are a lot of people who, for the, the first couple of scenes that he's there, would not even realize that he is this person who has been prophesied about. But then as the film goes on, they get to know him first as a nameless creature, then as a creature who, who maybe has, is, is not actually who he was meant to be or, or said to be, and then finally viewed as kind of this wise mentor who really does have it all together and who has purpose, and you can believe that at one point in time, he was indeed a great warrior. 
Now, because that was so early in my life and because the culture has been so saturated with, with Star Wars lore, we can never get that moment that was orchestrated, right? Where Yoda was talked about and shows up on screen. Then we would be surprised to be like, oh my goodness, that's Yoda. That's disappointing. No, that's awesome. We never get to go through that progression. We have been, have been, have been robbed of that because of familiarity. You know, there's this guy in the Bible. I don't know if you heard him. His name is Jesus. And... Um, I think there's a certain familiarity we have with the name of Jesus, a lot of the titles of Jesus that sometimes keep us from really engaging with the characteristics of Jesus as he is introduced to us in Scripture. You know, we sing the songs about Jesus all the time at Christmas. In our house, we even have a nativity that my wife likes so much that it stays up all year round. It's one of those willow tree nativities from Hallmark. It's like permanent decoration in, in, in our house. You come to chapel all the time, and you have been to, to, to classes a lot to learn about Jesus. Some of you have been to, to VBS. That, that name means something to you. And so when Jesus is introduced in Scripture, I think sometimes we have to take an extra pause, an extra moment, and say, okay, we kind of understand who Jesus is. But what would it be like for us if we look at these introductions and pretend like we don't know anything about this Jesus that is coming? Jesus is talked about, Jesus is prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah talks about Jesus quite a bit. When you look at prophecies of, of, of the Messiah in the Old Testament, a lot of the books will spend a lot of time talking about what Isaiah has to say about the one who is to come. This conversation first kind of starts in earnest in Isaiah 9, which is a text that we're not going to hit today, but then really starts to, to, to turn up the heat in Isaiah chapter 11. And this is what Isaiah says as he is prophesying what this Jesus person is going to be like when he comes. As Isaiah introduces us to somebody that the initial hearers of the book of Isaiah would not have known. Isaiah says this in Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from a stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." And that's the word of the Lord. It's an interesting word. It's a word that at the beginning might trip us up a little bit because we don't know all the cues that Isaiah is talking about. When he says that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, when you think of a stump, what do you think of? You think of a tree that's what? 
dead. R.I.P. the homie tree, right? So the tree is, is, is dead. It has been died and it has fallen over or in our case, perhaps it has been cut over by a chainsaw. So what remains there is, is the stump. And if you've ever seen a stump of a tree, the thing about it is if the, if the root system was good, then it's going to try to, to, to keep growing, right? So even though it's fallen down, even though it's been, been cut down, some shoots will come out of it. So he's using some figurative, some metaphorical language here. And when he talks about the stump of Jesse, the person that he is talking about, Jesse is, we know if you've taken your Old Testament class, the father of David. David is somebody in the Bible who's a little bit more familiar to us because he took the stones and he put it in his sling, bap, got Goliath right between the eyes, slayed him, becomes the king and and does a lot of great things and does a lot of kind of shady things and then is held up as one of the, the people who are most faithful to God in all of scripture. Now, as the prophecy goes, and then as we see when we get to the New Testament, the prophecy is fulfilled. The Messiah was going to be a descendant of David. And sometimes the scripture speaks of this Messiah being a descendant of David. Sometimes it talks about the Messiah being a descendant of David's daddy, which would still make him a descendant of David. We're just going a little bit back farther into time. The shoot from the stump of Jesse that is being talked about here in the book of Isaiah simply means that when Jesus comes, he is going to be related, a part of this royal lineage, this royal line. Coming forth from the stump of Jesse, the branch shall bear fruit. This person, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. That's something that we see about Jesus in scripture, don't we? We see this intimacy between Jesus and and the Spirit of God, between Jesus and the Creator, between Jesus and the Father. When Jesus gets um, baptized, there's that scene where the voice of God comes out and says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit of God descends from the clouds like a dove. The Spirit rests upon him. There is a spirit of wisdom, of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Just in verse 2 there, when we think about snapshots of the life of Jesus, of the way that he was able to quote Old Testament scriptures, the way that he was able to settle disputes between people, the way that he was able to comfort people in their anguish, the way that he was able to do things that nobody who has ever come before him was able to do. No one who has ever come since him was able to do. We see the fullness, the fulfillment of this prophecy in the, in the life of Jesus. Verse three then continues to start out in his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And isn't that something that we see in Jesus? Jesus retreating to pray, to make sure that that, that he could be connected with the Father. Jesus being perfectly obedient to God. Even when, you know, it seemed kind of like confusing, even when he was kind of having this internal struggle, even when he was in the garden and he was praying so hard that he started to, 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 to uh, sweat drops of blood, we see that Jesus had his, his delight in the fear of the Lord and that everything that he did came from a deep reverence and respect for the character and for the work and for the plans of God and the things that God was trying to do, namely to reconcile humanity back to himself. That is an amazing introduction. And those are things that we're all familiar with. Those are things I can just bam, 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 rattle off, off the top of my head. But think about hearing that for the first time. 
If you're in the, the, the days of Isaiah and wondering who is this person that is being built up that is about to come for us, this Jesus that we worship, this Christ that we follow, it's a pretty amazing, amazing, amazing person. These are big ideas about who Jesus is. There's certainly some specificity there, but, 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 but these are big ideas about who Jesus is. There's something now that Isaiah starts to talk about for the next few verses that's very specific. And let me reread these verses for us, beginning in verse 3. He shall judge by what his eyes see. He, sorry, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze." Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. All of this goes back and references something that we talked about a few weeks ago. I don't know if you were here when Tim Gabrielson spoke. Uh, it was at the very beginning of the semester on a Wednesday. He talked about something I didn't actually expect him to talk about. When I schedule these chapel talks, I find people that, you know, I like and that I think would do a good job. And we have these texts that we need to work through. And usually when I give people the text and the date, then I put a title on there that makes sense to me. That might be what I would preach about uh, if, if it was, you know, me preaching. And so when I hit up uh, uh, Professor Gabrielson and I gave him that text from Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 4, I put, you know, something about worshiping at the mountain of the Lord, because that's what it talked about. And that's what it talked about at the beginning of that text. But then in verse 4, it talked about this very famous verse about how we should beat our swords into plowshares and be a people of peace. And Professor Gabrielson in that day um, actually covered a lot of the ground that I wanted to cover today. In terms of generally, what does it look like for the people of God to be a people of peace? He talked about the Hebrew concept of shalom, which certainly means the absence of violence, but also has a lot to do with reconciliation and wholeness and completeness and fullness of our lives. He talked about how that related to the Greek term arene, which also means peace that we see in the New Testament that speaks to the peace that Jesus brings to our lives through his death and through his resurrection and through us accepting Christ as our savior. He talked about when we look at how to apply what it means to be a people of peace, it's probably not a great direct application to us as Americans, but is really a better application to who we are as the church. Because what we know as people who are Christ followers, who worship Christ, is that Jesus is one who ushers in a kingdom of peace. Isaiah talks about it with, with as sometimes very blunt language, but then also this very poetic language, language that makes some of us sometimes, you know, squirm a little bit because it feels uncomfortable to us. When Isaiah is talking here, he's talking about all of these animals that uh, uh, hang out with each other that aren't supposed to. The wolf 
lying with the lamb. Look, you don't have to watch a lot of Looney Tunes to know that like one of the, the, the really deep, deep philosophical streams that runs through the thing is that there's this wolf and he tries to steal sheep and the rooster, what's his name? Longhorn, Foghorn, Foghorn, Langhorn, whatever that big old rooster's name is, is always trying to stop the wolf from running off with the sheep. What we don't know as little kids is that those sheep, they gonna get eaten. But that's like the implication for those of us that can understand cartoons in an adult life. The, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf will lie together and the child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw with the ox. And this is where it gets a little freaky for a lot of us. I'm like, nope, nah, see you later. Bye. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. You can have that life. That is not my life. Jesus is going to have to do a work for that to be something that we can have because snakes are not cool. I'm not the only one that feels this way. My cousin Kimberly, who just moved here, she's renting this house and she sent us a text today after church that she was glad that her mom came today because a a snake that was this big got in her house and I sent her a text back. I was like, when you're in Wichita today, you need to get one of these. And it was a picture of this dude with a blowtorch. I'm like, burn the house down. We cannot have big snakes. We cannot have little snakes. No way, Jose. But this is saying that in the age of peace that Jesus is going to usher in, that even the child will be able to play at the hole, at the den, at the pit of the cobra. It is an all-encompassing peace that the kingdom of Jesus is going to usher in. And you know what? That sounds really good. But at the same time, when I think about that as a Christian, and if we are going to apply this kingdom mentality to what we do in the church, it's a little bit of a scary notion for me. Because I don't know how well we are doing that right now. If this is how Jesus is introduced, and if this is part of the thesis of who Jesus is at his very core, if this is the life that Jesus is going to be about, and if we are going to call ourselves Christians or Christ followers or or Jesus followers, people of the book, even church-going members, in churches that worship Jesus, we have to ask ourselves, are we about a life where we are ushering in a kingdom of peace? And you know what? You might say yes. And I'm going to say, you know what? If you come from an evangelical or a mainline denomination, I do not think that the fruit right now is being born of those efforts. In fact, I would say that the state of our country today is an indictment on the fact that we are not a people of peace. I would say that the discord and the disunity that we see today, that the violence that we see today, the way we even talk about this stuff in our communities is is what would lead me to believe that we have not been putting all that Jesus put into making a reconciliatory peaceful kingdom. And to put it uh, mildly, perhaps we've been just sitting on the sideline and being silent. But unfortunately, I think that there have also been times when we have been fighting against opportunities to forge peaceful communities in our midst. I got to Tuesday of last week and I was already worn out 
And I got to Thursday, and I was talking to my wife, and she like, um, she's great because she just like doesn't follow the news, and I think that's probably a good decision on her part. And so like sometimes you know I'll get her like caught up or summed up on stuff, and like I, she could she could just tell I was down, and I was like I'm tired. And I told her about what happened this week in Oakland. And I told her what happened in um, Ohio. And I told her what happened in Tulsa. And I told her what was going on in Charlotte. And, and I was just like, you know what? I don't even know. I don't have the words anymore. We've been trying to talk to people about this for a, a, a long time. We tried to talk about it with people when we were in Kansas City, when we were doing urban ministry. We were trying to talk about the inequalities and the systemic injustices that were happening and how, how frustrated people were, how people were crying out. And it was very difficult to get people outside of those boundaries to listen. And then over the last two years, as this, as this conversation uh, has, has continued and has really kind of erupted, the question becomes, where is the church in this? Where is the church right now? And where has the church been? Because you know what, man? When I look back through, through history, what I see is, is, is a lot of warning signs. A lot of warning signs that we were going like, to kind of come to this time where the difference is if we did not reconcile them, if we did not repent of the sins of our past, if we did not change the trajectories that we were on, that it would be a, a, a repeat of history. And that once again, we would see the discord that we have seen time after time after time again in this country. And I, I thought about, you know, some of the, the, the things that, that I had heard. You know, we love to put, uh, you know, Dr. King memes on Facebook, uh, especially the I Have a Dream ones. It's, it's kind of the historical amnesia and historical revisionism that we have in this country without realizing that that man had a thunderous prophetic voice. That as that man sat in prison, he sat in jail in Birmingham and wrote a letter that said, the church is not doing enough right now. The church is not about peace. And if we read a letter from a Birmingham jail, if we internalized it, if we paid attention to it, he, you know, he could have been writing that right now in a jail. And it would be prophetic and thunderous to us today. Dr. King went on TV a couple of years before his death. And people were trying to push him and prod him and say, like, hey, you're nonviolence. Keep people peaceful. And one of the things that he said, he was so resigned at the end of his life. And I think he was honestly a little depressed. And he said, look, man, riots are the voice of the unheard. And you've got to start hearing people. And you have to start being agents of peace or else this thing isn't going to work out. And so if Jesus is going to be this agent of the peaceful kingdom, if this is the thing that he is going to usher in, if he is going to be the one who shall judge the poor with his righteousness and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, if he's going to be the reconciler of those populations, if he is going to act on their behalf, if we're sitting here in 2016 and looking around and the world is burning down around us, then we have to ask ourselves some serious questions about what the church has been doing for the last 60 years. And we have to ask ourselves some questions about what is the church doing now? 
Because to be honest with you, across the board, the church is not doing enough. So now you're probably sitting here and hopefully what you're wondering is, well, what can I do? If you're sitting here and you're saying, well, I don't really believe systemic injustice was a thing. I don't have anything else for you tonight. I'm sorry. Like I've kind of gotten to the place where in my life, I can't argue that point anymore. Now, if people are willing to say, yeah, things seem pretty messed up. How can we do something together? That is a conversation I can have with people. But for my own personal care and sanity and so that I can do things like, you know, not walk around angry all the time and be a good parent to my kids, um, I've kind of decided that the one thing that I can do in my life is talk to people who do say that they follow Jesus and to say, okay, let's talk about how we can do some of these things. So say you are a person and you say, okay, I follow Jesus. Okay, maybe my church, maybe in my life, I haven't been about these things. I haven't been speaking on them in a reconciliatory way. What are things that I can do? Here's, here's what it comes down to for me. My first challenge to you would be this. Pray. Pray. And I'm not talking about just put hashtag praying on Facebook. No, I mean like really pray. There's this book in the Bible. It's called Lamentations. And Lamentations is a long word. But the important part of that is lament. And the book of Lamentations is this lament of the state of being of the people of God and of the society that are around the poet and the prophet at that time. And I would say if you're looking at the situation in our country today and you're saying there's some discord here between what I see of what Jesus wants to usher in and what's going on right now, give it four weeks and pray about it and pray about it consistently. Pray about it every day. Pray about it hard and pray about it in a way where you might be invited into something that is uncomfortable. Because I don't just want you to pray, God, stop this from happening around us. I think what we need to pray is, God, how would you put me in the middle of this to be a positive force for peace, shalom, wholeness, completeness, reconciliation, your idea of restorative justice to be an advocate for those who are crying out. And I think that you'll be interested to see what happens when we lament together, when we pray together, we get invited into some things. Now, as we are doing that, as we are praying, as we are lamenting, I think there are two things that are really important. Number one is to educate ourselves. And the other is to expose ourselves to ideas and experiences that are different from our own. There's this dude. He's my friend. His name is Ben. And he grew up uh, in a town called St. Francis, Kansas. St. Francis, Kansas is not a big town. It's one of the towns that is like smaller than, you know, Colby and Goodland that you're going through as, as you're trying to make your way to Denver. Like after you get to Hayes and you're like, please, sweet, sweet baby Jesus, just like deliver me to those mountains. This is like really long slog. Sorry, Western Kansas people. I really do love you. It's just a really hard part of the drive for me. Um, he lives in one of those little towns. He grew up there, and he was at Sterling College, and then um, he went to Chicago for a while, and then he came back to Sterling College, and, and we became friends. And we became friends. He started reading stuff about the civil rights movement. We started reading stuff about people who were very different from him and his own upbringing. And he started to expose himself and educate himself to different ideas. And what happened was when he stopped being a resident director here at Sterling College, he moved back to Chicago 
But he moved back to Chicago. He moved into a neighborhood called Lawndale. Lawndale is this amazing neighborhood. It's amazing, um, not in the sense that it is overly prosperous. In fact, it was one of the most violent neighborhoods in Chicago for um, a, a long time. It was very poverty-stricken. And some folks came into Lawndale, and they said, okay, we want to come in, and we don't want to take over. We want to empower the people who are already here to lead churches and to run businesses and to be the next generation of politicians and doctors who help do stuff in Lawndale. And so they did that. And now Ben is doing a master's program that's a master's of divinity. I never thought he'd be a pastor, man, but he's doing it. A master's of divinity that focuses on urban justice. And man, this thing is in him. And you know what? It's not easy. It's not easy because they've invited people from, from Lawndale to, to live with them in their homes. And it's been fulfilling, but it's been hard. And they've seen some of, uh, they've, they've lost a lot in their relationships. And they've seen a lot of things that they never thought that they would see before. They've given up a lot of their own personal time. When they first moved there, Ben volunteered um, with a, kind of a, uh, to, to help guys who were having legal troubles. He volunteered at this legal center to just help folks get life skills and to navigate the legal system so that they could have an opportunity to get through it in a way where they weren't throwing their whole lives away. And now, you know what, man, Ben is on fire in a way that I never thought he would be. He is doing all of of these things. He is trying to contribute his small part to make this kingdom happen in the middle of Chicago. And in doing so, he is advocating for people who he has come to know and love. And that's been hard. It's been hard because, you know, his family honestly doesn't always agree with him. And friends that he had who are Christians, even at Sterling College, don't always believe in him and believe in the cause that he is fighting for. But he is about that life of carving out peace where right now there is no peace. I think what happens is this. When we pray, when we educate and expose ourselves to things, it builds something in us. And I think what it builds in us is empathy. And so no matter where we're from, no matter what our background is, we can empathize with people who are different from us, from different backgrounds from us. And what we see when we, when we empathize is that God then begins to open doors for us to serve people. Do you know that World Impact is based out of Wichita, Kansas? It's one of the biggest uh, nationwide urban ministry centers in the whole entire country. And they have sites in Dallas, they have sites in Topeka, they have sites in California, they have sites on the East Coast, they're everywhere. And they're based out of Wichita, Kansas. We have people on campus from there, uh, usually once a year or, or once a semester. What would it look like if God invited you to be a part of what they were doing in our backyard? How would that be an opportunity for you to be invited into this idea that we are going to be a kingdom of peace-minded people who advocate, who advocate for those that Jesus would advocate for, the meek of the earth. What would it look like if, if you went out to, to the, the, the prison in Hutch? Because they're always looking for people. And in fact, one of the pastors in our community, the pastor uh, of, of one of the churches here, he uh, goes out there once a month and helps with their chapel services. What would it look like for you to go out there and, and be with him and, and do something there to help guys and, and the ladies that are there to, to be better citizens when they get out on the outside? 
what would it look like? What would it look like if you went and you talked to a pastor or a congregation in a city that was struggling with racial strife and listened to what they had to say? Listen to their frustrations and listen to the things that they are doing in their own backyard because then maybe you would hear stories that you are not otherwise hearing amongst all of the other narratives that are being pumped to us through the internet and through Facebook. Maybe if you talk to a pastor in Baltimore, you would know that after Freddie Gray died, that it was the pastors of the black church in Baltimore who led 10 straight days of peaceful protests that did not get captured by the TV cameras because the TV cameras were only only interested in coming when the city started to burn. Maybe if you went to Charlotte and talked to the pastors there, you would hear the work that they are doing on on the front lines there to try with their very might to keep things as peaceful as possible. And maybe what you would hear them say is, yes, continue to pray for us and partner with us and advocate for us in your communities because the job is bigger. The job of dismantling systemic injustice is bigger than what we as a handful of people can do. And just like Dr. King wrote from that letter in a Birmingham jail, one of the biggest threats to progress is going to be if the church, if the normal people, if the regular people, if the moderate does not take a step out and advocate for the kingdom of peace. Look, I know that that's heavy. I know that's a lot. Um, So a couple of things. I'll take it back to the idea of prayer. And are you willing to pray? Are you willing to spend time over the next four weeks in prayer, asking God, what can you teach me through what's going on right now? And how can I be about this Isaiah 11 life? Second thing that I'll say is I'm always open for conversations. I do like to talk to people about this stuff. And in fact, I found that over the last year, um, there have been a lot of people that I've known in the past who have called me, people in this community. We've had some, some good talks, and I'm happy to continue those. You know, if you're interested in this kind of conversation, come hear the people who are going to talk on Tuesday. These are all wise people. These are all people who love Jesus. These are all people who have had very interesting stories to tell about what it looks like to be peacemakers in the world, reconciliatory across racial and ethnic and social bounds. And I think that you will find their insight into life very interesting. And then I'll leave you with this confession. This is a confession. It's crazy how sometimes stuff comes together. This is a confession of faith um, from a 1967 confession that we said in church today. And as the band comes up, I'll simply leave you with this confession to think about what it means for us to be the church, to be Christ followers. The church responds to the message of reconciliation in praise and prayer. In that response, it commits itself afresh to its mission, experiences a deepening of faith and obedience, and bears testimony to the gospel. The arts, especially music and architecture, contribute to the praise and prayer of a Christian congregation when they help us look beyond ourselves to God and to the world, which is the object of God's love. As we join together in worship again, I encourage you to look beyond yourself to God and to the world, which is the object of God's love.